Okay, we are in, in Genesis chapter 31, and we're going to pick it up at verse 43. So we finished, we just finished up 43 last time. We're going to pick it up and just overlap on 43 and then continue on through the rest of that chapter and into 32 today. So Genesis chapter 31, verse 43. Then Laban replied to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, and the children are my children, and the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day to these my daughters or their children whom they have born? So now come, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let, let it be a witness between you and me. Then Jacob took, the stone, took a stone and set it up as a pillar. Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. So they took the stones and they made a heap and they ate there by the heap. Now Laban called it Jegarsh, Jegarsh. Hadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, This heap is a witness between you and me this day. Therefore it was named Galid and Mizpah. For he said, May the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent from one another. If you mistreat my daughters, or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no man is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Laban said to Jacob, Behold this heap and behold the pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness and a pillar. the pillar is a witness. And I will not pass by this heap to do you for harm. And you will not pass by this heap and this pillar to, to me for harm. The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, and the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. Then Jacob offered a sacrifice on the mountain and called his kinsmen to the meal, and they ate the meal and spent the night on the mountain. Early in the morning Laban arose and kissed his sons and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned to his place. So we talked last time about about this confrontation between Laban and his son-in-law Jacob, and how they had gone back and forth. And then Laban says, let's have a covenant. This is not a covenant of peace in the sense that, okay, let's just forgive and make up. This is a covenant because you have two men that don't trust each other. Laban didn't trust Jacob. Jacob didn't trust Laban. And what they decided to do was to set a dividing point. So this is in this hill country, um, so, so where, where Laban was, was, was up in here is where, where he had spent, where Jacob had spent the last 20 years with Laban over by the Euphrates River. And he came down and he was fleeing and he got into this hill country here of the hill country of Gilead. And it's right near this, this, it's just before this river. It's right in this hill country. This is taking place. So he didn't get, so Jacob didn't get yet into the promised land. He had set his face he had set his face toward that hill country because he thought if he could get there, he would be safe. And it turned out, no, Laban, Laban caught up with him. And it was right there in that hill country that uh, uh, they made this covenant. And so they set up two things. They set up a pillar. So Jacob took a pillar, which means he took a stone and he set it on its side. And so now it's standing up. And then he told all his kinsmen, each bring a rock and set up another heap. So there's the pillar and a heap of stones. And he set this up like that. And uh, uh, they made a covenant. I won't, 
Jacob's not going to pass by that to go to do any harm to Laban. Laban's not going to pass by that to do any harm to Jacob. These are two men that decided to separate. And this is what that covenant is about. It's not a covenant of, I love you. It's a covenant of, I'll do you no harm, you do me no harm. And these two men separated. And uh, um, uh, it, it's, it's interesting about this separation, this separation that they, they went through. Um, it's, you, you know, this happens in life. Sometimes you just, the, the business partners, for example, need to separate. My, I started my first company when I was 39 years old, and I had this feeling like, I could work with anybody. I, I, I can get along with anybody. And now, after all these years, whenever I'm starting a new company, I wonder, can I get along with anybody? You know? and, and so it, it's, it's, it's really turned, you know, because it's hard in business to get along with people. And uh, there's a lot of, lot of conflicts that come. And so you may remember that Rachel had taken the idols. Jacob knew nothing about that. Rachel had taken the idols, and the idols give title to land. And so Laban was afraid that Jacob had these idols, and one day he was going to come back and claim Laban's land. That's why he said, you don't pass by here, and I won't pass by to you. And it's interesting, Jacob had the 12 sons that were the sons of the, of the, of the 12 tribes. None of those sons ever went back up to that Euphrates River area to get a wife. Why? Because they weren't, they partook of this covenant meal. They were partakers of the meal as well. They couldn't go back up there to get a wife. They were never going to go back up to that part of the country. Neither him nor his sons, the ones who took that meal. And, and uh, uh, they swore in verse 53 by the God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, uh, uh, who was, who was uh, um, Abraham. Who, who, was, who was the father, I'm sorry, Nahor was Abraham's brother, and their father, who was Terah. So they, they, they're invoking the, the, the gods of, of their fathers, and, and they judge between us, and Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. So, so uh, uh, you see this covenant is going between people. Now remember, Rachel, his wife, had lied to him. She stole the idols, but she lied to him. And I'll tell you, uh, uh, spouses can lie. Children can lie. I mean, children lie to parents. And, and so when you're a parent, if you think, no, my child told me and my child would not lie to me, well, surprise, children lie sometimes. They really do. And, and uh, people lie. And so it shouldn't shake us that, oh, you told me a lie. I mean, yes, we should be upset you lied, but, but uh, um, don't let it shake your faith. I mean, people lie. And, and uh, um, you, you know, these things happen. And so, you know, sometimes I'll speak to young people and I'll say, you know, you, you guys shouldn't spend time together because you're going to end up in bed together. And they say, you don't trust me? I say, absolutely. I don't trust you. I don't. I don't trust myself. I can't be in a lo- alone in a place with a woman who's not my wife. I mean, I travel a lot, travel on business a lot. I don't go up to my hotel room with a woman to work on a document or something. We will stay in the business center in the hotel or we'll sit in the lobby and we'll work on that document. But don't you trust me? I don't trust myself. I don't want to be in that room alone with a woman. Both for the optics, how it looks, where, you know, we both come out smiling and, you know, it doesn't look good. But also I don't want to be in that situation. 
And so I don't trust myself. It's not just that I don't trust other people. I don't trust myself. And, uh, um, and, and you know, I hope my kids tell me the truth. I hope they always tell me the truth. I, I don't know if they always do. I mean, it, it, uh, I hope they do. But, you know, you never know. And if they don't, it's not like, oh, you're not my child. No, you're my child. That's not going to change. You lied to me. I mean, kids lie. I remember when I was a kid, we were hitting golf balls on the side of a building with my cousins, and, and a woman came and complained to my uncle, who was my cousin's father, and, and he came and talked to us, and his son said, he asked his sons, were you hitting golf balls into the side of the building? And they said, no. They thought, well, they just lied to their father. And so he went back to that lady, he says, my sons told me they didn't, so they didn't. I'm thinking, well, I mean, kids lie. I mean, so, so you get over it. And so one day your kids might lie to you. It's, 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 it's not the end of the world. I mean, you just, you just go on. All right, I'm, I'm not condoning it. I'm just saying don't let it shake you too much. Now, let's, let's look in, 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 in verse 55. It says, Early in the morning Laban arose and kissed his sons and his daughters and blessed them, and Laban departed and returned to his place. There was no hug and no kiss for Jacob. It's not like in chapter 29, verse 13, when he first saw Jacob. He hugged him, he kissed him, he invited him. No hugs, no kisses for Jacob. These are not two men that are leaving, loving each other. They are making a covenant. And sometimes in business, the best thing to do is you part from people. It really is. It's not the end of the world. It's not like it's, it's terribly unchristian. Sometimes it's better just to part from people. Look, I'm not going to sue you. You don't sue me. And we're just going to part. And sometimes in life you have to do that. Remember, when I, was, when I was 39 and started my first company, I thought this would never happen to me. And now a few companies down the line, I'm like, how long before this is going to happen to me again? And, and you, you just get a different perspective on life. These things happen in business. All right, chapter 32, reading from verse 1. Now, as Jacob went on his way, the angels of God met him. Jacob said when he saw them, this is God's camp. So he named the place Mahanaim. That city, that, that uh, place Mahanaim, it's not a, n- noted on this map, but it's, it's right there just above that river, just right on that river Jabbok, the Jabbok River. This is the river Jabbok. This flows off of these mountains of Gilead down into the Jordan, which then feeds the Dead Sea. And so it sits right about here. It's right on the border. It's a border city between what is going to become Manasseh and Gad. So, so Manasseh ends up being a big tribe, and that. The, so you have on on the on the eastern side of the Jordan River, you have Reuben, Gad, and half of the tribe of Manasseh is going to occupy this territory: Manasseh, Gad, Reuben. And then on this side, you're going to have the other half of the tribe, Manasseh and then the, all the other tribes on the western side of the Jordan. So that, that, that ends up being a very famous city. This, he, and and it, was, it was Jacob at this time that named that, that little city, Mahanaim. That becomes also a city of refuge. That's one of the places that you could go if you killed somebody accidentally so that their family can't come and kill you. You could run to that city. That was going to be a city of refuge under the law. Uh, that city became the city where Ishbosheth, the son of, um, of Saul, set up uh, um, the camp for, for the northern tribe, for, for the, the, this, these northern tribes of Israel, and uh, uh, for, the, for the, the, the tribes that were going to be under, under uh, uh, Benjamin and, and the family of Saul. Uh, so it, it ends up be, being a pretty important city. 
Um, and, and it also was a, was a city hub, a center under King Solomon. So he names it that city. But what I want to look at here today is verse 1 of, verse thir- of chapter 32. Now, as Jacob went on his way, the angels of God met him. This is really important. What has Jacob just been through? Well, Jacob just had all of this confrontation. He put his family on camels and he marches them out. No preparation. Remember, he meets his wife. He calls them out to the field. He says, we got to get out of here. He says, your father is planning something to hurt us and to do things to us. And he has to run. So I want you to imagine this. In three hours, you have to pack up everything you have and leave the city of Houston and go to Chicago. In three hours, you'd be like, I can't do that. No, you have to do that. It's hard. It is hard to pick up and leave. And for you, it's just you. And you may say, no... You're married, you have a spouse, so it's your spouse too, so you've got to get your spouse. It was, it was uh, uh, four times harder for, for uh, Jacob because he had four spouses. So he had to get, get all of those women together, and he had to get them on camels, camels, and he had 11 sons and at least one daughter at that time, Dinah, probably more daughters because we see later on there were more daughters as well. So he had to get at least 12 kids get going. Try to get one kid going all of a sudden. I mean, the, the diapers and all the other things you got to deal with. But he had to get 12 kids going. And then all the servants and the animals, thousands and thousands of animals, pick up with almost no notice and start marching out. So he goes seven days. He gets to this area of Gilead. He's like, we got away. And lo and behold, Laban shows up. And then there's this, all this confrontation with Laban. I don't know if you've ever had confrontation with family, hard confrontation with family. It is emotionally draining. And then this guy comes and accuses him of stealing these idols, which he knows nothing about. And then Laban ends up going through every item that he owns, rummaging through it, trying to find his idols. And so when you go and the TSA goes through your baggage, it's, it's kind of, you know, you feel sort of invaded. You know, they go through your baggage and then they, you know, feel it all up through, through your body and everything. But imagine if it's not some foreign TSA person. Imagine it's your father-in-law is doing this. You know, and so, so someone you know is poking through everything you own. You feel invaded. Then he's got to go through all this controversy. There's this covenant he's got to make with somebody he doesn't like. And you kind of have to act nice through this thing. And then you got to eat a meal. That's part of having the covenant. you got to have a meal. So you have to have a meal with somebody you don't like. And you, 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 and then after this meal, you know, you're not hugging and kissing him at all. And then there's this part of, it is emotionally draining. You know, there's been times in my life where I had to, there's been two occasions where I, where the board asked me to be the one to fire the chief executive officer of a company. And the board asked me, I'm like, why me? I mean, let him do it. And, and uh, no, I was the one who was tasked to do this. And it is, you know, you got to go in there with lawyers and you have, to, you have to have a whole succession plan set up because as soon as that person is fired, you have to have people come in immediately and take over the computers and everything because you don't want them, you know, dumping stuff and getting rid of, of, of things, that, records or anything. And so it is hard. you got to set up for weeks to have this succession plan. you got to line this thing. And then you go in there, somebody you know and somebody you care for as a human being, and you have to say... Um, 
this is going to be your last day at work. <laughs> it's emotionally really draining. If you've never done this, you will do this one day and you'll look back and you'll say, now I know what he was talking about. I couldn't, I couldn't even speak because my mouth was so dry. It was so emotionally draining to have to do something like this. And, and you feel wiped out. And then, and then he had just gotten through all of this and he's wiped out. So he goes on his way. And then what happens? God meets him in his distress. God meets him. In Proverbs, I'm sorry, in Psalm chapter 34, Psalm chapter 34, verse 18, it says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. When is the Lord near? When your heart is broken. You know, it's amazing. We can laugh with perfect strangers. You know, you you know, you'd be with, you, you'd say a joke to somebody, you'd laugh with perfect strangers. But you only cry with people that you know and love. It's only with people that you know and love that you cry with. You laugh with a perfect stranger. But when it comes to crying, this is with people that are close to you. And it's all the more meaningful if that person who's close to you has gone through the same thing. And then the two of you are weeping together and there's this union in the weeping. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. It's when we are brokenhearted that the Lord is nearest. It's not in these times of rejoicing and joy and all this, you know, this great raise in the business. You know, you get to, you know, uh, someday raise your salary. It's not in that time that the Lord is nearest. It's in the times when we're brokenhearted that the Lord is nearest. And he saves those who are crushed in spirit. When our spirit is just like, I'm just wiped out. The Lord is nearest in that time. That is who our God is. That is who our King is. You know, there's this this, uh, portion in Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus deals, starting in verse 1, he goes into the wilderness and the devil confronts him. This is with the devil himself. This is not like he's sending some lowly, lowly demon to deal like we have to deal with. This is the devil himself comes to deal with Jesus. And he hits Jesus three times. He hits him and and then Jesus quotes the word to him. So then he quotes the Jesus he quotes the word back to Jesus. He's quoting the word to Jesus and so he's this is direct confrontation. And after the third time, it says in verse ten of, of Matthew chapter four Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Even Jesus was sent angels to minister to him when he had gone through all of this conflict. It is amazing what God does in our hardest times. That's when God shows up. The nearness that we have in Christ is so much better than what Jacob had. Yes, angels came and ministered to Jacob in his time of being totally wiped out, physically running for at least seven days. It was probably ten days because it was seven days that they had been running and then he had to make nice and have this this emotional struggle all going on with his father-in-law after they had had this big argument and after having been invaded all his stuff by his father-in-law. 
totally emotionally wiped out, spiritually just wiped out, the Lord comes and sends angels. But we have it all the closer because we can call Jesus the Son of God, our friend. Remember, he says, I no longer call you slaves, but I call you friends. We call Jesus our friend. We call him our brother because he refers to us in that way. We can call him our brother. We can, call, we can commiserate with him in our pain because we know Jesus his, himself has been through pain. Jesus himself has been through suffering. He is our co-sufferer. Jacob never could have done that with the Son of God. We have that in Christ. We have the embodiment of God in Jesus Christ co-suffering with us. He is our co-laborer. He is our co-sufferer. All rejection that we have gone through, he has gone through many, many times more. Has your family rejected you? His family rejected him. Has your loved one rejected you? His loved ones rejected him. And they fled from him. The people that he invested his life into. If you are in ministry, I warn you about this. People that you will pour your life into will get up and walk away after five years. You've poured your life into them. You've counseled them through things. You've gotten them built up. And they'll just disappear. And then they'll come, oh, I just started going here. People that you relied on. People that were your right hand that helped you in ministry as you picked them up. They will leave you. If you are in ministry, you will undergo times of disappointment. And they were not your all when they were with you. So you've not lost everything when they depart. Jesus is our all. Jesus does not keep us from times of suffering. He does not prevent us from falling into times of suffering. But what he does is he keeps us from the despair of suffering. That's what he does. He doesn't keep us from suffering, but he keeps us from the despair of suffering. That's what he does. That he himself was never in despair. He was never in despair. He does this. He gives us his re- this relationship with him. This relationship that we have with Christ, with Jesus himself, that they never knew. Those men in the Old Testament never knew it. Adam and Eve never knew the fellowship of God. Yeah, they walked with God in the garden. But the fellowship that we have in Christ through the Son of God that we call him Savior, they never had that. We call Jesus Savior. He is the one that ministers to us. Paul, he was thrown in prison in Jerusalem. He had just tried sharing with his brethren. He loved the Jewish people. Paul said in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, Paul says, My heart's desire and my prayer for them is that they would be saved. That's what he says. It's not just my prayer for them. Lots of people will pray for the lost. But Paul said, my heart's desire and my prayer for them. And I will tell you, you will not start seeing salvations coming through your ministry until your heart's desire is to really see people saved. Paul said, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. You have to have both. You have to really want to see people be saved as well as pray that they be saved in order to have them saved. Then he says, I would give of my own salvation I would give of my own salvation if my 
brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, the Israelites could come to know him. I mean, think of that love. That's how much Paul wanted to see them saved. So he stands up in Jerusalem. He witnesses to these people in Jerusalem and they want to kill him. He gets thrown into prison. He's totally rejected by his people after he's willing to even die for them and give up his salvation for them. He's thrown into prison. And what does it say? The scripture says, while I was in prison, the Lord stood at my side and said, you solemnly testified of me in Jerusalem. You must testify of me in Rome also. I mean, the Lord stood at his side. In his despair, the Lord stood at his side. This is Jacob's despair. He sends a bunch of angels to minister to him. And he said, this is a camp of angels. He named the place Mahanaim, camp, two camps. He said, my camp, your camp, you just camped with me. These angels came to encourage him. It says, uh, um, it, it, it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Look at the way the scriptures describe God. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. I mean, think of this. You Go ahead, study other religions. Where do you see God described as your comforter? I mean, we, we are like servants. We are like dogs to serve God in other faith, faiths. In this, he says, I am your comforter. This is the Lord whom we have. He says, the father of all mercies. He's the father of mercies, not just mercy. He's the father of all mercies. And the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Whatever we go through, he comforts us. Have you been rejected? People will reject you all the time. Believers will reject you. Christians will reject you. I've rejected people. I mean, that happens. That really happens. You're going to be rejected by pastors. You're going to be rejected by teachers. But God himself will never reject you. He says that... that he who comforts us in all our afflictions, he comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. God comforts us so that we learn from this so that we can comfort others. That's what he says. So that we would be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. The sufferings we go through are abundant. These are the sufferings of Christ. The sufferings of Christ hit everybody. And you can't measure godliness by, by the amount of suffering. There are some very godly people that go through horrendous suffering. And then there are some just regular people that go through horrendous suffering. You can't be measured by, by the amount. But he says that for just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. If you don't know the Lord, you don't have this. If you don't know the Lord, you don't have this. He says our comfort is abundant through Christ. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5, our suffering is abundant through Christ. 
every good thing we have is because of the Son of God who loves us and gave himself for us. If you have not received the Lord, you have not access to this. It's all embodied in Christ. I urge you this day, if you have not received the Lord, come to him this day. We're going to have lunch after this. I urge you, come to my home, sit with me, let me tell you about Jesus so that you can be saved. And you will be saved today, this day you will be saved. And then let Jesus Christ himself be the comfort for you. He comforts us in everything we need. All It says, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. Our comfort is abundant through him. This is the grace of God that's been poured out. We've been enriched in Him in every way. He does everything for us. Everything. I want to close with this verse. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which has been given you in Christ Jesus. That in everything you were enriched in Him, in all speech and in all knowledge. If you have good in your life, if you have received good things in your life, if things have come upon you, every good thing that you have is because of Jesus. You have been enriched in everything in Jesus Christ. Every good thing in your life is because of Jesus. In all speech and in all knowledge. If God has given you the ability to speak, it's a gift of God. That came because of Jesus Christ. If he's given you knowledge of a particular subject, it's not because of you. It's because of Christ. He gave it to you. Every good thing we have has come to us embodied in Jesus Christ. It's because of Jesus, the Son of God. We will not be able to praise him enough for all eternity because of what the Son of God has done. Jesus is the best in every way. He comforts us in all our affliction. He is our comforter. He is our grace. He is our sustainer. Every good thing you have is because of Jesus. I thank God over and over again. I walk into my office, Lord, thank you for this desk. I mean, I got a great desk. I really do. When I got hired by Rice 20 years ago, they gave me a budget. And I went out with a guy who really understands. And he said, what kind of... I chose the wood. chose red cherry wood. And they built the desk to fit my office red cherry. I mean, do I deserve that? I mean, I started with a little metal student desk. That's what I started at as a professor. And I got this beautiful desk, and I thank God for my desk. And that, that, uh, that I have this office and these tables. and the, Lord, thank you for everything, everything I have. And then I look over my projects, and I say, Lord, thank you for those projects. I mean, you just dropped this upon us. It wasn't like, I think I'll just develop this today. No, God, in his mercy, drops things upon us. God, by His grace, drops it upon us. Every good thing I have is because of God. Because of everything that Jesus Christ has set up. Jesus Christ set up everything. He comes in and He sets up a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And He serves me. This table is all set up and I just walk into my office. It's all set up for me. Jesus has set up everything. Every good thing you have. That in everything you were enriched in Him. Every good thing you have is because of Jesus. Did you get your paper published? It's because of Jesus. It's because of Jesus. Jesus did this for you. Did you get this new position? It's because of Jesus. Jesus did this for you. Jesus gave this to you. Jesus is the one who did this. It's all because of Him. 
did you find this wonderful fiancé? It's because of Jesus. Jesus did this for you. Jesus is the one who did this. Jesus looked upon you and he said, it is not good for man to be alone. It's not good for this woman to be alone. Jesus opens up this door. Jesus is the one who does this. Don't you understand? Every good thing in your life is because of Jesus. He has enriched you in every way. If you have knowledge on a particular subject, this is not because you're so great. He's the one who put the brain cells there and, and did all, made sure all the firing was going to take place in these neurons to be able to, to give you this knowledge. He's the one who did it. You didn't build that yourself. Jesus did. Jesus did. Everything you have, you've been enriched because of him. Forever and ever, we will praise Jesus. If you don't know him this day, I urge you to come to know him. He has a table set for you and he's wanting you to come in. He stands, the Bible says he's standing at the door and he's just knocking. Would you let me in? Let me into your life. He's standing at the door and he's knocking. Let me in. Let me in and I will bless you abundantly. Yeah, the the sufferings of Christ are going to be yours in abundance too. But the comfort's all there. I want you to go through suffering so that you can comfort others who are in suffering. If you've never suffered, it's hard to comfort others who are suffering. You go through suffering. Why? Why do you go? So that you will be prepared to comfort others who are going through suffering. So that you can learn to hug people and weep with them. Even if you haven't gone through that particular suffering, that you can just hug them and say, I am so sorry for what you're going through. I didn't even know how to comfort people until I met my wife. I said, how do you do this? I mean, somebody has a death in the family and she says, let's go. And I said, what do I say? What do I do? She says, you just hug them and say, I'm sorry. And you just hug them. I said, that's all. She says, that's all. It's all you have to do. I said, I can do that. I can do that. And uh, you learn to comfort others who are going through things. You learn to comfort them. This is what life is about. This is why we go through this, to comfort others and experience the God of all comfort through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for the truth of your word. You are the God of all comfort. And everything has been established for us in Jesus. Jesus, you are the best, the very best. You've done everything. And you have suffered more than we will ever suffer because all the sin of all the world was heaped upon you. You bore all of this on our behalf. Lord Jesus, praise your name. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your goodness toward us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your mercies. You are kind and gracious in every way. Lord, I pray for the believers who are here that they would learn to love you more and appreciate you more for every good thing that you've opened up in their lives, for every good thing that you've opened up for them. And Father, as they go through struggles, let them learn to come to Jesus, who is the God of all comfort, who will comfort them in all of their affliction. And Father, I pray for the unbelievers. Oh Lord, please let them not get through this day without getting saved so that they could experience the goodness of Jesus, the kindness of Jesus, the graciousness of Jesus. Father, draw them to repentance, I pray, that they would turn from their sin and accept Jesus this day. That they would pray this very day 
to receive Jesus. And Lord, I offer this up to you. Oh, Lord Jesus, I offer this to you for your glory. Amen.